Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. Also, we pray that it acts as an encouragement to you today. We are currently in a series called The Movement, which is a study of the book of Acts. We are specifically looking at God's movement through the early church. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Great to see all of you here this morning, those of you who are in person at Scotts Hill, those of you in the Cross Point Center, we're so glad that you're able to join us there. And those of you who are watching us online, we're so glad that you're able to join us week in and week out. And I want to give a special shout out today to someone who's watching us in Atlanta, Georgia. My older brother, Dennis, is watching this morning. So everybody say, hey, Dennis. And I just want to give a shout out to your older brother, and I'll always remind you that you are the older brother among us. And we have some special guests here, and we always have special guests here every day. And when I was coming in this morning, I noticed that there was a special person sitting on the bridge, and we just want to say hello to Bernie. Um, He's warm and he's toasty and and he has not really, you know that. That is the one meme that has been going around nonstop this past week. We're so glad that you're here this morning. We began a new series last week called The Movement. And it is a series on the book of Acts. And we're have a, uh, gonna take the next 13 weeks to go through the book of Acts. Now, obviously, it's not gonna be a verse-by-verse study. We're gonna pour through large sections of scripture at a time and settle in on key principles that God wants to teach us during these days. Now, we call it the movement because there are a lot of movements going on in our culture, amen? You've got all kinds of movements. You've got social movements, political movements. We've got all kinds of different cultural movements that are happening But those movements never transcend beyond the time that they are existed. But we're talking about the movement, the supernatural movement of God with the message of the gospel that is spreading worldwide day in and day out and transforming the lives of people. And when we look at the book of Acts, the entire book is about the movement of God from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And last week, we began by looking at chapter 1, and we settled in on one verse, and that was verse 8. And chapter 1, verse 8, we've seen is the mission statement for the entire book of Acts. Everything keeps going back to Acts 1-8 over and over and over again. You're going to continue to see that. And here's what Luke, who is the author of this book, also the author of the Gospel of Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what he said to us. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we looked at that passage last week, we settled in on the mission statement of what God has for us with this movement. And there are three pieces of that that we have to remember. He gives us our power for the mission, and it's the Holy Spirit. The third person in the Trinity is not some impersonal force. He is a person, and he fills us with his power. And we cannot begin the mission that God has for us apart from the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that last week and the importance of that. Also, our purpose in the mission, we're called to be witnesses. We are to testify and give a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the truth of Jesus in the scripture, the truth of how Jesus changed our lives and how he's continuing to change us and that Jesus is the only hope for humanity. 
Our job is not to be a judge, as we said, or a prosecutor or a defense attorney. We are simply witnesses to the world of what Jesus is doing. And the third point that we saw was the plan. We have a plan for mission. We go to our community. We go to our country. Then we go to the continents. And throughout the book of Acts, you find these things happening. We find the entire book of Acts is broken down in community, country, and then the continents. So that's what we saw last week. There's our mission statement. That's our calling for all of us. But now we come to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is all broken down into three specific sections. There's verses 1 through 13 that deal with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then there are verses 14 um, all the way up to 41, which deals with the birth of the church. And then there's the concluding portion of Acts 2, 42 through 47, that talks about the activities of the church. Now, most people, when they look at Acts chapter 2, they will focus on the bookends of that chapter. Many people will spend their time focusing on the first 13 verses. Now, that's very significant. It's very important because it's a supernatural blessing of the Holy Spirit. And in the first 13 verses, here's what we find. We find 120 believers, both men and women, who were gathered together, praying together, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon him, them, and, and he comes like a rushing mighty wind. They're tongues of fire that are resting on individuals. And then they begin speaking in other tongues. Now, all scholars agree the word there in the Greek for tongues is a known language. It is a spoken dialect that people understand. It's not some prayer language It's not that needs to be interpreted. It's not a personal in, um, um, prophecy or anything like that. It is a known language that a person had no knowledge of before that now is able to speak. In other words, the Holy Spirit falls upon these people. They are speaking known languages. And the people who are there at that celebration of Pentecost are hearing the message of God and the praise of God in their own tongues. And the people who are speaking these had no knowledge of that language before. But God is communicating the gospel to the world in one setting. That would be like me standing before you this morning. And then all of a sudden, flawlessly starts speaking to you in Spanish with no North Carolina accent at all. And I would be able to speak a language that I had not known before, and I may never do it again. Now, we talked about descriptive and prescriptive. This passage is descriptive. It's describing what the Holy Spirit did in those early believers. It is not prescriptive. It does not mean that every person who has been indwelt and filled by the Spirit of God is required to speak in a known language that they do not know. Although, I have friends on the mission field who have testified to me that they were in situations where they spoke flawlessly the language to other people that they currently and beforehand did not know. And there's a supernatural work that God still does. They never did it again, but they did it only in that one occasion. So what we see in that first 13 verses is the Holy Spirit coming in power, filling the people of God, anointing them, and equipping them for ministry. Now, if you look at verses 42 through 47, we see what the church was participating in. That is both descriptive 
and prescriptive because of what they were engaged in. And we'll look at that later. But this morning, here's what I want us to do. I want us to settle in right in the middle of Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14, and as we go all the way to verse 41, here's what we're going to discover. We're going to hear the very first sermon ever preached after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the very first sermon ever preached is by none other than Peter himself. And Peter, who has had no experience of preaching, stands up in the power of the Holy Spirit. He declares the message of the gospel. Then he gives an invitation and 3,000 people get saved that day. Boy, I wish my first sermon turned out like that. I wish any sermon I ever preached turned out like that. But that's the power of God. And 3,000 men and women saved. Now, how do we know they were saved? Because it says they repented, they were baptized. The Holy Spirit is the one who tells us they were saved. And I think he knows better than any one of us who was saved and who was not. So there are 3,000 people saved. But in that passage, here's what we discover. We discover how God builds and multiplies his church. That's the whole theme of that section. How does God build and multiply his church? What we're going to discover this morning is how he does that and how he continues to do it day after day after day after day for the past 2,000 years and until he comes back. So how does he do it? Let's get right into it. Number one, God meets people where they are. God always meets people where they are. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Then he says, these men and women are not drunk as you suppose, but they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Job prophesied about it. There were thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem that day. They were there for a festival. They were just there to celebrate. They were celebrating Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. It's 50 days after a previous celebration, which was the celebration of first fruits which is the ending of the barley harvest. And then we see that this is known also as the festival of weeks, Pentecost, because they're celebrating the end of the wheat harvest. And between those two are significant, significant um, truths with those celebrations. The celebration of first fruits always came the day after the Sabbath that followed Passover. That might sound confusing, but this is how it is. Passover is on Friday. The Sabbath is on Saturday. The beginning of first fruits is on Sunday, the first day of the week. By the way, Jesus was crucified on Friday as a sacrificial lamb and buried. There was the Sabbath where everything was quiet. And on the first day of first fruits, Jesus rose from the dead because he's the first fruit from the dead. Fifty days later, now they're celebrating this other called Pentecost. It was also the recognition of the coming of the law from Sinai. And it was the day that the Holy Spirit invaded and pervaded humanity, which was also, by the way, on a, Monday, on a Sunday. 
Both of those the first day of the week. And all of these people are gathered. They're just celebrating. They didn't come for Jesus. They didn't come because they cared about Jesus. They came to celebrate. It'd be like if all of us were downtown at the Azalea Festival, and we're having a great time, and God meets us right there. And God meets all of these people in the middle of their celebration, not looking for Jesus, not trying to find specific answers about Jesus in their life, but in the middle of where they are, God meets them. And that is always so sweet about God. You know why? Because he always knows where we are. He knows where I am spiritually. He knows where I am emotionally. He knows where I am physically. And God is so good and so kind that in the middle of our mess... He shows up. Isn't that wonderful? Where were you when God met you? I know where I was. I was a senior in high school. I was rebellious. I was living a life that was far from anything that pleased God. I cared nothing about God. I was in a church service on a Thursday night, not because I wanted to find Jesus. I went there to find a date. That's why I went. But that's where God began to draw me. And to change my heart and my thinking. And he pulled me into a relationship with himself. He met me where I was. Some of you know what I'm talking about because he met you in the middle of your mess. For some of you, he met you in a wonderful sanctuary of a Christian home. You were taught by your parents, but their faith could not sustain you. So in the middle of that, God met you and drew you to himself. Some of you are watching online today. Some of you may be here with a friend. And maybe even now, God is stirring your heart. But here's the wonderful thing about God. When he meets us where we are, he doesn't demand us to change our lives before we come to him. He doesn't say, go clean yourself up. Go make sure you get rid of those habits. Go make sure that you no longer do that sin anymore. No, in the middle of all that junk, he shows up. Why? Because he knows that we are broken and we cannot change ourselves. So he shows up. I want to tell you, when God builds his church, it always begins right here. He meets us where we are. And I just want to tell you this morning, God knows exactly where each one of us is. But not only does he meet us where we are, when he builds his church, there's a second truth. God tells us the truth about ourselves. Now, this is not necessarily a popular thing. And I want you to know that Peter's sermon is not a sermon that you would preach in a seeker-friendly church. It's not a sermon that you might preach in an attraction model church. It's not a sermon that you would preach if you want people to feel good about themselves because Peter tells them the truth. And beginning in verse 22, here's what he says to them. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst and you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Now, how would you like that? You're standing in a crowd and Peter calls you out. You crucified him. Verse 36, he repeats it. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now Peter goes right to the heart of the issue. And he accuses the people of having a hand in the death of Jesus. Now, this was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Those who lived in Jerusalem knew all about what happened. They knew the scandal. They knew the trials. They knew the crucifixion. They even know the rumors that he raised from the dead. And he's saying, you crucified them. Now, probably without a question, many of the people in that crowd that day were in the crowd when Jesus was crucified. They may have been there on Palm Sunday when he's coming in and they're praising him. But did they actually crucify him? What about the people who were visiting from out of town? Were they also responsible for the death of Jesus? What about you and me? You weren't there. I wasn't there. So is the question, are we all responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? And a very short answer, yes. Yes, because he was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. God himself knew that Jesus had to die because of the sins of humanity. You have sinned, I have sinned, and therefore every one of us without question is responsible for his death because he died on behalf of us. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson was a producer of that film, and he purposefully stayed out of the movie the whole time. In that movie, there's only one scene with Mel Gibson. You don't see his face. You see his hands. One hand is grasping the hammer. The other hand is grasping a spike, and he's driving the spike into the hand of Jesus on the cross because the picture that he understood was, my sins put him there. And here's the thing about God. He always tells us the truth about himself, and he tells us the truth about me. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all is inclusive. That means every single human being, without exception, has sinned. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. We have sinned and we have failed to please God. As a result, every one of us has this nature of sin that we have to deal with. And you go on through the rest of the book of Romans and you will discover that God is telling the truth about who we really are. And a lot of times that we fail to see this, we talk about that the, that, that the, the, the ground on the cross is level, that no Christian is any greater than another Christian because of grace. That is true, but the ground in our rebellion is level as well. There's no sin that's worse than any other sin. And those who are the most most incredible, depraved sinners are no different than the person who attends church every Sunday, who goes to small group, who goes on mission trip, but has never surrendered his or her life to Christ. They're both on level ground, and they're separated from God. And you know what we tend to do with sin? We want to grade our sin, don't we? We like to talk about other people's sins that's worse than ours. And we put them on this grade. We want to talk about the fruit of our sin. Lying and stealing and cheating and murder. That's the fruit. But we never want to talk about the root of our sin. And the root of our sin always is the same. In Romans chapter 1, 
The Apostle Paul lays out what the real root of our sin is. And it's threefold. Let me give them to you. The root of our sin, we worship creation over the Creator. Every one of us in our own nature, we do that. We worship things before we worship God. We worship people. We worship jobs. We worship relationships. And left to our own devices, we have the tendency of worshiping everything but God. And we make false gods. But also, we think we're smarter than God. He says that consider yourself to be wise, you become fool. We think that we're smarter than God. God gives us his word. He gives us his commandments. And all of these things are meant to protect us and to provide a relationship between us and him. But we think, no, I don't need that. I don't need that. You see, that's for other people. That's not for me. And we suppress the truth of God. And we become foolish. But here's the third thing. We refuse to acknowledge God as Lord. We don't want to yield to him. We want to be our own gods. Now, when you're preaching a sermon, and it's your very first sermon, and you're calling people sinners, and all of these things, and this is what God says of you, some people will get offensive. You know, it's one thing for me to call myself a sinner, but it's different for you to call me a sinner. But the reality is this. Sometimes we think, oh, that's so harsh. But I want to tell you the kindness of a God who would tell us the truth about ourselves. Here it is. If God came to you and me and said to us, you are awesome, we know that wouldn't be true. Because we know their own weaknesses and the flaws and the sins and the temptations and the depravities of our own heart. And if a God would come to me and tell me I'm awesome when I'm not, either he is lying to me or he doesn't know me. In any case, he is not worthy of being worshipped. But the God of the universe loves you and me so much that he'll tell us the truth about ourselves. And when God builds a church, he builds not only meets people where they are, but God is always telling us the truth about who we are. And he wants us to know that we are broken. He wants us to know that we are in desperation. He wants us to know that we do need help. And therefore, we're hopeless. You see, the truth is this. Bad news is always the foreground, the background for good news. And if I don't know that I need help, then I will never see the need for a Savior. And that's how good our God is. When God builds a church, he meets us where we are. When God builds a church, he tells us the truth about ourselves. But here's the third thing. When God builds a church, God provides salvation through his son. Here's the wonderful thing. God provides for us our hope when we need it most. Beginning in verse 39, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But therefore... Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses of it. Two times Peter says, Jesus is resurrected. 
Why did he talk about the resurrection of Jesus? And what does that do for our hope and salvation? There are two reasons Peter talked about the resurrection. Number one is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead validates everything Jesus ever said about himself and God. If Jesus had not resurrected from the dead and his body would have stayed in the tomb and he would have decayed, then everything that Jesus would have said would be in question. There would be no testimony of a witness that he actually rose from the dead. But when Jesus rose from the dead, every single thing he ever said is validated. If Jesus stayed in the tomb, he would be a lunatic at best and a liar at worst. And when he rose from the dead, it validated that every single thing Jesus said can be trusted. But there's another point of the resurrection. Not only did it validate Jesus' claims, but when he rose from the dead, it is proof that he paid the price for humanity. It is proof that God is delighted in his death and his sacrifice. It is proof that he is the only means by which we can be reconciled to a holy God. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. In verse 22 and 23, he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe, the righteousness of God is through Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Everyone who sins falls short of the glory of God. He goes on. And there is no distinction. All those who are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he accomplished three things that you and I can never accomplish. Number one, we have redemption. Jesus paid for our sins. Nobody else can do that for you. Jesus paid for your sins. Secondly, because we have justification. He counts us as righteous. Even in the midst of our fallenness, because of his justification on the cross, by completing God's plan, we are counted as righteous. And the last one is this, propitiation. Big word. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. We sang about that this morning. He's the only one who can appease God, can satisfy his wrath because of sinners. And here's what God says. Listen, I met you where you are. You are a sinner. And your only hope is in what Jesus has done for you. His resurrection from the dead validates that he is my son. His resurrection from the dead proves that he's the only one who can bring you into a right relationship with me. And he makes it very clear and very exclusive. But here's the third thing. I mean the fourth thing. God demands a response. God demands a response. When God is building his church, he demands a response from people. Notice what happens in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They cry out. They hear the message. Many of them respond, what shall we do? And he tells them, repent and believe and be baptized. 
Now, here's the amazing thing. We don't know how everyone in that crowd responded, but we know this. Every person in the crowd responded. Some of them cried out in brokenness and surrendered their lives to Christ. Some of them rejected the message of Christ and walked away. And some of them may have given a mental assent. You know what? That's good to know. I'll I'll keep that right up here. And they don't surrender their hearts. You see, God demands a response. And every single person who hears the message of the gospel responds to it. Either one of three ways. You will yield your life to the truth of what you've heard and surrender to Christ, or you will reject it and walk away from it, or you will give this mental assent to it. And you're going to like what you hear. You'll even believe what you hear. But you never yield your heart. An old, an old um, preacher from many years ago of Puritan background said this. The same sun that softens the ice hardens the clay. Isn't that amazing? The same sermon can soften the hearts of some people and they yield to the gospel. But the same sermon can harden some hearts and they don't receive the message of it. See, the reality is we all respond to the gospel. But how will you respond? And those who receive the message, the message of God's word continues to soften our hearts as he molds us and makes us more into the image of Christ. And as we continue to walk with him, we see how he softens our heart more and more and more to holiness and obedience and purity and righteousness. But the person who hears the message over and over and over and over again, they are walking on a fine line. They are playing with eternity. They're on the very edge of damnation. And every time they hear the message of the gospel and they continue to reject it, their hearts become harder and harder and harder. And the writer of Hebrews says this, that they no longer have the opportunity for repentance because they keep trampling over the blood of Jesus and crucify him all over again. I want to say the most dangerous place to be in the church is a person who is given mental assent. You believe that Jesus is God's son, so do the demons. That's demonic faith. You may even be having some kind of pseudo form of Christianity where you're involved in the life of the church. Maybe you're in a small group. Maybe you're giving your life to service, but you've never surrendered your heart. And you are one heartbeat away from separation and the response that God has is to surrender I was thinking this week about the number of people who have died with COVID and we've been hearing a lot of that lately haven't we I'm going to ask you a question how many of you believe that people will die this year raise your hand raise your hand okay how many people believe that you will die this year raise your hand wow (laughs) Isn't that amazing? We all believe that we're going to die, but none of us believes we're going to die this year. I did a funeral yesterday. I've got a funeral Tuesday. I hate to tell you this, that the mortality rate among human beings is 100%. 
unless the Lord Jesus comes back. And boy, I sure hope he does soon. But in the reality of that is this, we're all going to die. But everybody thinks that a heart attack is for somebody else. Cancer is from somebody else. COVID is for somebody else. And the thing that we need to understand is this, when we die, our eternal destiny is sealed. There's no second chance. Those who are in Christ Jesus will be with him forever. But those who harden their heart to the message of the gospel over and over and over again will be separated from him. What do the people do in that crowd? Here's what it says. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people. The church is born. Here is the church God met them where they were. God told them the truth about themselves. God says, here's your only hope is in Jesus Christ. God says, now you respond. And those individuals who surrender their life, they at that point were baptized into the spirit of God and part of the body of Christ. The church is born. But it doesn't end there. It only begins there. Because here's the last thing, and I'm going to do this very quickly. God creates a new community of people. He creates a new community of people. From that moment, there's a new community of people on the planet. And they're called believers. Verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending in the temple, together breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the picture. God created a new community of people. Believers. And there are three marks in the early church that I believe are prescriptive for the church today. Devotion. They were devoted to one another, devoted to the Lord Jesus, devoted to one another. This is what we call community. Secondly, there was a joyful submission with gladness. They submitted to the Lord Jesus. They submitted to their leadership. They submitted to one another. That's what we call unity. So there's community, there's unity, And then there's generosity. They were people of open hands. They gave to everyone who had need. This is ministry. And for the rest of the days, and we'll look at this in the next couple of weeks, of how that transformed Jerusalem. How the power of this new community absolutely changed the culture of Jerusalem. And as we look at that, we will see what God is doing in the church. But let me just say this. What God did 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, He does every single day around the world. God is still building His church. God is still multiplying His church. Every single time God meets you where you are, 
He is building and multiplying the church. Every single time God tells a person the truth about themselves, he is building and multiplying the church. Every time God tells someone about their greatest need and their need is Jesus Christ and he alone can save, God is building and multiplying the church. Every time people surrender their lives and respond to the message of the gospel, God is building and he's multiplying the church. And every time there is a new community who's gathering together in devotion and joyful submission, and generosity he is building and he's multiplying the church this never ends until the Lord Jesus comes back if you're a believer here today the incredible work that God has done to bring you to this place is only by his grace you have never earned it You can do nothing to gain it except for His grace in your life. And He's called you to a movement of joining Him in His work of what? Transforming lives. That's what He's called us to. We're called to be a part of that process in sharing the good news and being witnesses and walking in the power of the Spirit of God. But I want to say this, if you're here this morning and you've been having a mental ascent of Jesus but you've never surrendered your heart God is calling you today. One of the things our pastors have been talking about is giving a greater opportunity for people to respond to what they've heard. And here's what I want to do today. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard. Maybe you've been coming to Scotts Hill for a time and you've been listening over and over and over the message of the gospel, but you're, you're like the people in Jerusalem. You're saying, I hear you, but I don't know what to do next. What do I do? I would say, repent of your sins, turn to Jesus, and follow him in obedience. And if you're here this morning and that's you, I want to encourage you this morning to do that. Maybe you're watching online. I want to encourage you to do that. And we're going to do that right now. I want everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're at home and you're by yourself, you don't have to do that. But I want everyone else to bow your heads and close your eyes. Perhaps you find yourself in a place where you know about Jesus, but you've never surrendered your heart to Him. That is, you've never given Him your life your past, your present, your future, and allow Him to be the Lord of everything in your life. But this morning, God has spoken to your heart and you're willing to surrender to Him. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray this prayer to yourself. There's nothing special about the prayer. It's about the intent of your heart as you seek Him. Just say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my sin separates me from you. And I believe that Jesus is your son and that he's my only hope. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he's alive today. And right now, I surrender my life to you. I yield to you. I ask you that you would forgive me of my sins and that you would be my Lord and my Savior. I turn from my past. I turn to you. 
And I ask you to have your way with me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one looking. You've never prayed that prayer before. You've never done it before. But today, you mean that. And you've surrendered your life to Christ. I want you to do something bold right now. If you prayed that prayer, nobody's looking. I want you to just raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for those who have lifted their hands. And as they've surrendered to you, Father, I pray that you would show them day by day what they are to do to serve you. And Father, we make ourselves available to be with them today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what we're going to do in just a moment. I'm going to dismiss you and I'm going to ask our elders of the church who may be here this morning. Some of our pastors and our our lay elders are here. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to come to the front. And if you raised your hand, I want to challenge you to come and speak with one of these elders and say, hey, I just want you to know this morning I surrendered my life to Jesus. We want you to tell them and talk with them about that. And we want to pray with you. And we want to walk with you in this new life that Christ is going to give you. Believers, always be prepared to be part of God's work in the church by sharing with others Jesus is their greatest need. God bless you. Have a great day. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast. And thank you also to those who continue to give with generosity. If you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about Jesus or our church, go to scottshill.org slash next steps for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it onto your social media stories. Whatever you want to do, just make sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Until next time.